So these are the topics that are um, on the exam that's coming up a week. Is it this usual time? Next week? So I, I think I should be able to be here for that. So if you have questions at the time, feel free to ask if I'm here. So um, it'll be in this order in terms of how the exam comes. Now there's some crossover. Some of the same drugs we talked about for angina came up, for blood pressure came up, for heart failure, even came up to treat arrhythmias. So it makes writing questions a challenge and coming up with 50 unique items. But I think I've done it. <laughs> so we should have some fun with that. All right, so for the anti-ischemic anti agents, um, there are the nitrates, of which nitroglycerin and isosorbide, you should recognize those are nitroglycerin derivatives and the properties that are applicable. Beta blockers will be those three. One non-selective agent, and two cardioselective agents, knowing which is which, certainly relevant. Calcium channel blockers, at least as it pertains to angina and lodipine. The other two become relevant for some of the other content we've talked about. And then renolazine is a drug that is also an anti-ischemic agent, but doesn't alter hemodynamics. It does reduce, with chronic use, it reduces myocardial oxygen demand and that translates into fewer symptoms, but it's not doing anything directly to heart rate or preload or afterload. So it's sort of the magic of that drug working on mitochondrial metabolism, never by itself, in combination with other things. Now there was one other type of therapy we talked about at the end of this lecture. What were they? We didn't talk about their mechanism. But we alluded to their potential benefit in heart disease, and that was ACE inhibitors. Yeah. And that was as a consequence of what study? Yeah, the HOPE trial. Yeah, good to remember that. Maybe just look and see what that was about once again. All right, so 62-year-old man, recently diagnosed with heart disease, given a prescription for nitroglycerin sublingual tablets to use as needed for symptoms of angina. Which of the following should it be counseled to avoid in combination with this new drug? Aspirin, atenolol, diltiazem, grapefruit juice, sildenafil. Sildenafil. I'd be surprised if you fail to see this kind of question next week. Because it's going to come up over and over again. Might as well start the over and over again here in this class. So, and for these reasons, right, we know that nitrates are a source of guanylate cyclase. You can't see the pointer, can you? No. Source of guanylate cyclase, and drugs like Viagra are phosphodiesterase inhibitors. They end up being complementary in a dangerous way in this picture here. Guanylate cyclase triggers more cyclic GMP, more muscle relaxation. Phosphodiesterase prevents degradation of single KMP or muscle relaxation, so potential for dangerous hypotensive episodes if we combine the two mechanisms together. So we want to avoid that. All right, I think we did this in class. I might have structured a little bit differently. Let's see if we did or not, and if we did, if you recall. Which of the following most applies to the following graph? So it's a non-selective beta agonist. It's a non-selective beta blocker, or it's a beta-1 selective agonist, a beta-1 selective blocker. So here's the picture. Did we do this in class? Yeah. 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 So as you give more and more of the drug, heart rate goes up, 
and vascular resistance comes down? So the answer is... Not C. It's A. Yeah. So the... So the increase in heart rate comes from stimulation of beta-1 receptors. The reduction in peripheral resistance comes from the stimulation of beta-2 receptors. Right? It's a weak effect, but it's an effect nonetheless. So the beta-2 receptor relaxes smooth muscle, mostly where? In the lungs, but also in the peripheral vasculature, just not as strongly. And so what you would see graphically is this kind of dose-related response. Give a drug like isoproteranol, and this is what you'll see. Increase in heart rate, reduction in peripheral resistance. And I use this to help explain the reason why we avoid beta blockers in what scenario? Vasospastic angina, like drug-induced, cocaine-induced angina. And someone asked me at the break earlier today that I thought some of the local anesthetics we use clinically are cocaine derivatives. What's the answer to that question? Yes, they are. In fact, sometimes we use cocaine as a local anesthetic. We have it in the OR here, and we can apply it topically as an anesthetic. So certain types of anesthetics are either cocaine itself or cocaine derivatives. Don't know what the incentives were for that question, but that's what I got. All right. That's a, and then, just kidding. And then... Um, Beta-1 receptors when stimulated heart rate, beta-2, smooth muscle relaxation, including peripheral vasodilation, albeit a weak effect, it does exist. Yeah? I thought just by increasing the heart rate, the body's responsibility decreased. Yeah, so you could, you could make an argument that you, sh you may get some reduced peripheral resistance because of compensatory mechanisms. But that's not what I was going with. Okay. <laughs> Well, yeah, that I see that supports the choice. All right, 62-year-old man with angina, been taking a nitrate and a beta blocker. Renolazine is now added. Which of the following applies? Heart rate, it goes down. After low goes down. Pre-load goes down. QTC becomes prolonged. None of those things. Most of them you're like, nope, 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 I don't remember. <laughs> could, could that then make E right or wrong? Right? That's what you're thinking. And the answer is, the answer is D. It, that one of the risks of renolazine is there is the potential for QT prolongation and there's a lot of drug-drug interactions where renolazine is the victim. Like use diltiazem and renolazine and there's greater exposure to renolazine and now you're risk for QT prolongation might be higher. So you've got to be a little bit careful with that drug. As we do with many drugs, it's just another one of those examples. But as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, no direct effects on hemodynamics. So none of the, these things change. All right, now for hypertension, it's a whole bunch of drugs. Right? Some patholytics, renin modifiers, volume modifiers, or drugs that are mostly vasodilators. One type of calcium channel blocker and then the other direct acting types. Good to understand, as Ryan was doing earlier, this equation and how there's compensation that occurs when we modify one side or the other. So there'll be a question or two 
that's going to ask you to apply this, whether or not it directly states apply this equation, that's what you'll be doing if you solve the problem correctly. So it's certainly application. And you'll see on this exam, there's a mix of just factual recall and things that you have to think about, typical with our other exams, but a little bit more fun to do, I think, for this topic, from my perspective. <laughs> all right, so for the drug names, I think I've got them all here. So for alpha blockers, prazosin as the prototype, it wouldn't hurt to recognize tamsulosin. Not that you have to remember all the nuances, but what, what is it about that drug that makes it different from, from prazosin and the other agents? Right, it's selective for alpha receptors in the bladder, doesn't drop blood pressure. So if you wanted to just uniquely improve urine symptoms and not lower someone's blood pressure, a drug like tamsulosin would be the drug that you would use. Alpha-2 agonists, either clonidine or guanfacine. For beta blockers, the same ones. For metabolic agents, methyldopa or reserpine. Methyldopa be, being our drug of choice for pregnancy. The renin modifiers, so ACE inhibitors, lisinopril, receptor blockers, losartan, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, spironolactone. The thiazides, like for the alpha-2 agonists, that are two are used, based, one based on just how we use it, and the other based on evidence. Like when all the studies are done, that's the drug we use. So chlorthalidone, hydrochlorothiazide. Direct-acting vasodilators, hydralazine and minoxidil, and then nitroprusside. How do those differ? How are hydralazine and minoxidil different from nitroprusside? Yeah, so the first two are dilators of arteries. The last one is a dilator of veins and arteries. Mostly veins, but arteries and veins of the quantities we're talking about here. And then the last one, nitroprusside, is our drug of choice for for hypertensive emergency. Give that intravenous infusion as your drug of choice. Then calcium channel blockers, dihydropyridine that vasodilate for arteries, or non-dihydropyridines that suppress heart rate, diltiazem and verapamil. All right, so 35-year-old woman, hypertension, prescribed clonidine, considered otherwise healthy, no known drug allergies, which of the following is likely? Cough, dry mouth, hypoglycemia, insomnia, urinary incontinence. Dry mouth. Dry mouth. Yeah. Cough, you'd be thinking about what? Ace inhibitors. Hypoglycemia, maybe, maybe beta blockers. Insomnia would be just the opposite of the other common side effect of clonidine, which is sedation. And then urinary incontinence. Maybe as a consequence of alpha-1 blockade. Yes, a dry mouth. So a drug that works in what way? Clonidine is an alpha-2 agonist, which means it's doing what? It's not anticholinergic. It's suppressing norepinephrine outflow. Remember, it binds to presynaptic alpha-2 receptors, and this suppresses release of norepinephrine. It turns out that norepinephrine has some role in saliva production. It's not intuitive because most of that is acetylcholine and muscarinic receptors. But there is some norepinephrine and beta receptor involvement in saliva production. 
And if there's less norepinephrine, there's less saliva production. So that's the reason for dry mouth. And then norepinephrine plays a large role in the brain in terms of promoting wakefulness. So if there's less of it, there's going to be more sedation. Many of our stimulant drugs are drugs that promote norepinephrine release. Amphetamines, methylphenidate like Ritalin. Those increase norepinephrine, here we have a drug that reduces it, including reduces it in the brain. All right, a 52-year-old man with history of asthma, depression, gout, seen today to initiate new drug to lower his blood pressure. Which of the following is the best choice? Imlodipine, chlorothaladone, metoprolol, propranolol, or serpine? See how much fun this is? <laughs> so the history of depression allows us to rule out what? Well, the beta blockers may further exacerbate some of the symptoms of depression, so maybe not attractive, but which one should we probably eliminate? For serpenes. We don't see that drug used a lot clinically, but it depletes the central nervous system of transmitters, including not just norepinephrine, but dopamine and serotonin as well. And so that may actually induce a clinical depression if we were to use a lot of it or exacerbate an underlying depression if we initiated it in someone who already suffers from depression. So we'll cross that one off. Let's see. The gout allows us to cross what off? We don't recall. All right. The, there's a glare here, so I have a hard time sessions look here. So the asthma. D. Certainly D. Propranolol, non-selective beta blocker, and maybe also, if you have other options, maybe the cardioselective ones too. Even a cardioselective beta blocker can cause some difficulty breathing in a person who has underlying asthma. Now, if there's a compelling reason to use a beta blocker, then you go forward. But if there's nothing else that says there has to be a beta blocker, maybe you avoid that choice. So what? we're down to just two drugs. Amlodipine and chlorthalidone. So which way do you want to go? Chlorthalidone. For what reason? Because it's a diuretic. <laughs> and amlodipine is a calcium channel blocker. And either one of those are among the top three drugs we like to start with for high blood pressure, right? Or the top three? Diuretics. Thiazide diuretics. ACE inhibitor or ARB, one or the other or dihydrocuridine calcium channel blocker. So we've narrowed it down to two. One of these two is likely to promote retention of uric acid. If you had to guess a calcium channel blocker or a drug that works in the kidney as being more likely, <laughs> as being more likely to promote uric acid retention, which one do you think that would be? Yeah, the diuretics, the, the, all of them actually, but the loops and the thiazides can precipitate attacks of gout because they promote uric acid retention. So that lands us on amlodipine, right? So that's the drug that would be the best for this particular case. All right, here's another one, equally fun. <laughs> so we have this 64-year-old man treated with Losartan after failing to tolerate other medications to control his high blood pressure. Very common scenario, you try one, not tolerate it, try another, not tolerate it, you're on to your third or fourth drug. 
which of the following matches the pharmacologic actions of this drug? And the way you do this is you read across. So A is all of these things, C is all of these things left to right, and this is renin, angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2, aldosterone, bradykinin. You have to think this through. Which of these applies to losartan? What drug is this? I keep forgetting you don't see the pointer. Alright, so this is an angiotensin receptor blocker. So it's going to block the receptors for angiotensin. The feedback is going to be, wow, what we're trying to achieve isn't happening. The kidney's releasing renin, the vasculature is not constricting, the fluid is not being retained, so there's going to be continual output of more renin. Right, block the receptors, the feedback will be, it's not doing what we want it to do, let's send out more renin. So there'll be an increase in renin. Which means there'll be an increase of angiotensin 1 being converted to angiotensin 2. Do you agree? Yeah. Alright, we get to the point of aldosterone, well the receptor's blocked. So there'll be a reduction of aldosterone. Right? But bradykinin <laughs> is left intact. So there's still degradation of bradykinin. The degradation pathway is left intact. So that lands us where? No change in bradykinin, increases in renin, angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2, reductions in aldosterone. Good? So the answer is B. B. Increases in renin, angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2, reduction in aldosterone because the receptor is blocked, no change in bradykinin because that degradation pathway is left untouched. If this were an ACE inhibitor, the difference would be in the bradykinin, right? But it wasn't. It's an ARB. All right, good. So that was fun. 61-year-old man, history of high blood pressure, diabetes, heart failure, presents for follow-up. Complaining that his breasts have become increasingly large and tender over the past several months. What medication is responsible? This is more factual. So this is... Yeah, spironolactone. So spironolactone can cause, because of its anti-androgen effects, increases in breast tissue growth in men and galactria in women. None of the other drugs are known to do that. So it's a little bit easier, simply remembering the side effects that match up with the drugs. Whereas the past two are really more application. All right, and the symptom treatment here, or the treatment of heart failure, has gone from symptom treatment disease modification. We still use a lot of these drugs to manage symptoms, diuretics, digoxin, maybe inotropes and advanced disease, but now it's about neurohormonal <coughs> regulation. Block more epinephrine or angiotensin or anything in the renin pathway, aldosterone, and you can get slowing and progression of heart failure if it's what type of heart failure? Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, right? The same type of benefits just haven't been proven or haven't been observed 
in the preserved ejection fraction population. So anything that can interfere with this pathway or interfere with norepinephrine, like the beta receptors, improve disease modification. All right, we have talked about and used for years ACE inhibitors or ARBs. The newest type of therapy also blocks peptidases. What's the name of that combination? A drug that blocks both angiotensin receptors and nephrolysin, a specific type of peptidase. Prevent degradation of radiokinin. The brand name is called Entresto, and the combination is an ARB valsartan plus a nephrolysin inhibitor known as Secubitril. 71-year-old woman with heart failure prescribed a number of drugs, one of which is furosemide. Which of the following do we need to routinely monitor? Potassium levels, right? Most diuretics promote potassium wasting. We need to pay attention on a periodic basis. You define what that is based on what the history has been. We need to pay attention to potassium levels and replace as needed. Various ways to do that. <coughs> Nothing else applies. Vitamin D doesn't matter. We don't monitor levels of the drugs. Liver function is not applicable. So for the loops, this is a good slide to be familiar with. All of it. <laughs> Good to be familiar with it. And there's a similar slide. I didn't copy it here for the review, but there's a similar slide for the thiazides that shows up in the hypertension lecture that is structured just like this. It has a little bit of difference. It's mostly about calcium. So good to know that one, too. So spend some time looking at those and making sure you understand what's happening there. All right, 71-year-old man, heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, prescribed a beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor, a loop diuretic. Today's given new prescription for digoxin. Which of the following is most important to monitor for him? Arterial blood gas, liver function, eye exam, serum creatinine, urine analysis for ketones, or all of those things. Can I go up to F? Like, will the system allow me to do that? No. Not possible. That was very quick. No. What, what do you think here? B. B? It's not B. It's not C. Well, I just keep going. It's, it's D. <laughs> Digoxin is not metabolized in the liver. It's cleared entirely intact in the kidney. And we need to pay attention to kidney function. And a crude measure of kidney function is to look at serum creatinine numbers. If that is elevated, it's a good early indicator that kidney function is compromised, in which case you need to do something different with your digoxin dose. So something to pay attention to. Why the yellowing of the vision? Yeah, so the vision changes, glad you brought that up. The vision changes are signs of digoxin toxicity. If you fail to dose adjust for poor kidney function, someone might present with blurred vision. People appear to be yellow in appearance. They almost look like angels, so they like to have a halo around their head. That's one of the side effects that you see with toxicity. Monitoring eye exam doesn't help predict that. It's simply a symptom you get as a result of digoxin toxicity. Pretty classic sign. 
All right, so for the drugs, diuretics, furosemide, and metolazone. But you know what? I don't think metolazone is going to show up. I don't think that's going to be the right answer to anything. Digoxin, Ivabradine. This is otherwise known as Coronor. It's sometimes used in addition to or in place of what? It's a niche drug. Remember this? We spent like three minutes on it total. Cardioversion? Not so much cardioversion. It does sound like a drug that cardioverts people. It, it lowers heart rate by blocking that funny channel. And can be used if you're trying to reduce workload on the heart and someone can't tolerate higher doses of a beta blocker or just can't use a beta blocker maybe because of pulmonary compromise. And then inotropes, dobutamine and melanoma, might come up. Certainly mechanistically might come up in terms of giving drugs to increase contractility as a bridge to transplantation in people that have advanced disease. And then for the other agents, we've already talked about ACE inhibitors, ARBs, Enalapril, it comes up a lot in the studies. Not that I've talked about any of the studies for heart failure, except for maybe one on the exam. Um, but if you saw enalapril, would you recognize that? Another drug that ends in PRL. Yeah? All the PRL drugs are asymptomatic. Um, and then Valsartan, because it's a combination of that Entresto product. So Valsartan plus Cucubitril down here. Beta blockers, metoprolol, carbetalol comes up in practice. It's not going to be on the exam, but it comes up in practice because it's one of the two or three beta blockers that have been studied to show benefit in heart failure. So you'll see it. So I want to acknowledge it, but I didn't test on it. Spironolactone comes up again in these same vasodilators that we encountered, either for hypertension, hydralazine, or for angina, isosorbide, used in combination. What population uniquely benefits from those vasodilators when it comes to heart failure? People of African-American ethnicity. Yeah. On top of other things, these drugs seem to be of additional value. All right, 45-year-old man with atrial fibrillation to begin therapy with an antiarrhythmic drug. Starting this therapy requires he be admitted for continuous monitoring. Which of the following is most likely to prolong the QT? Which is the reason he's admitted. Right? The fetalite, as we talked about just not too long ago. They're all antiarrhythmic drugs in some way or another. Amiodarone belongs to what class? It does a little bit of everything, but it's in what class? Three. Class three, potassium channel blockers. Dofetalide's also class three. It's the purest of the potassium channel blockers, which is why this risk is so high, QT prolongation. Where did flecainide reside? It was the fries, and more fries, please. It's 1C. Yeah, 1C. So a sodium channel blocker. Lidocaine is a 1B. And the metoprolol, we know it's a beta blocker. Two types of metoprolol. Immediate release metoprolol, known as Lopressor, long acting, known as Toprol XL. Semantics, probably. So the antiarrhythmic drugs, we settled on quinidine, lidocaine, flecainide, metoprolol, atenolol. We've seen them before, might as well keep seeing them. Don't worry about esmolol. Certainly, amiodarone, dofetalide, sodalol. Diltiazem, verapamil, we've seen those before. And now adenosine. And the things we talked about with the dentist in here in class. All right.
how these drugs affect sodium channels and depolarization or potassium channels and repolarization. Recognize which ones do which. Which of the following types of drugs is responsible for the effect depicted in this illustration? I asked you this question earlier. 1A. Yeah, this is 1A. Both sodium channel blockade and potassium channel blockade. Those are the 1A drugs. Drugs like names? Double quarter pounder. Isoparamide, quinidine, and procainamide. Quinidine being the relevant one. All right, 49 year old man, type 2 diabetes, prescribed simvastatin. Which of the following is most likely? Most likely is muscle related symptoms that that patient complains about. We try to treat through that because symptoms sometimes can resolve on their own or get better with dose modification or changing to a different statin, and the statins offer a lot of benefit. So these drugs, we just talked about the same thing. I just added now the canine inhibitors, nevolocumab being our prototype drug. It's the only monoclonal antibody of all the drugs we talked about in this whole block. So if you see a drug that ends in MAB, we're talking about cholesterol-modifying drugs. In this case, evolocumab. I think the brand name for that is Repatha. All right, which of the following is best avoided in the patient in the previous question? So let's see what the previous question was. Oh, simvastatin. All right, what do we need to avoid? Grapefruit. Grapefruit juice, like we talked about earlier. Or what could we do to the grapefruit juice to make the interaction go away? Water time. Are you taking it? <laughs> we could we could drink glass. <laughs> drink glass is an obvious answer. What else? Ultra when you take it. Give it intravenously. That um, is invasive, but we work. <laughs> There's something else we could do. Ultra what time you take it at? The reason that grapefruit juice interacts is because there's something in there called freonocumarins. Those are the substances that inhibit the enzymes. And we can do something to grapefruit juice to cause those to denature. Yeah, boil it. Boil your grapefruit juice. And you destroy the freonocumarins. I don't know what it tastes like after that, but that's what you can do. Again, across the street here, some of that work has been done to prove that that's a reality. All right, 52-year-old man presents for physical exam, medical history unremarkable, takes no drugs, fasting profile reveals triglycerides are markedly elevated. Which of these drugs is best for lowering triglycerides? The fibrate derivatives. In this case, there's only one, phenofibrate. So that's your best drug for lowering triglycerides if that's what you're trying to accomplish. Okay with that? And so here in this chart, again, relative, what's best lowering triglycerides? The best are the fibrates. What can be the most? Nice and second best, but the best are the fibrates. All right. That's it. So next semester, we will begin with, not that you want to think about this now, but we're going to do four weeks of antibiotics to start next semester. We've got to get through this next exam to get to the next semester.